And thank you for that introduction, uh, Pete. So the subject I'd like to discuss, um, can monetary policy affect economic growth, uh, is a hardy perennial, long-standing uh, subject of inquiry in economics, but is particularly relevant, I think, in today's economic environment. In recent years, uh, policy interest rates set by central banks uh, have been close to, at, or in some cases below zero. Uh, and this has led uh, many observers to wonder uh, whether central banks are at all capable of providing further economic stimulus uh, to, to boost economic growth. In addition, recent developments have led to speculation about the possibility of a recession around the bend in the United States and perhaps globally. I don't see any evidence right now in the data uh, to make me believe that a recession is imminent in the United States, but this talk has naturally raised questions about what course Fed policy could possibly take in response. Those questions, however, presume that monetary policy has a significant direct effect on economic growth, a presumption I will argue that is based on a misunderstanding of what monetary policy can and can't do. Monetary policy can determine the long-run path of inflation, I believe, but its effect on real economic activity is generally limited and temporary. Before I discuss these ideas in more detail, I have to note, uh, this is the standard disclaimer, we call it, uh, that the views expressed are my own and not necessarily those of any other members of the Federal Market Committee. I'm sure you understand that. As I said, I believe monetary policy's ability to affect real economic activity when monetary policy is being reasonably well executed, at least, can be quite limited and is almost always short-lived. In the standard models used in um, policy analysis, monetary policy's effect on the real economy generally derive from frictions in the economy that impede the rapid adjustment of the overall average level of prices uh, to um, uh, changes in the stance of monetary policy. Examples of such frictions would include the fact that it takes time for households and firms to adjust their behavior in response to changes in monetary policy. Such frictions are almost always short-run phenomena that generate transitory deviations in real activity, uh, and their empirical significance is a matter of ongoing research and debate. What does drive indicators of real activity? indicators such as how many people are working or uh, how much uh, they are earning. There's a consensus among economists that uh, growth in average real income depends critically on the rate of technological change. Growth occurs not only because we have more people working uh, or more machines, uh, in economic terms, more labor, more capital, but also because technological advances make existing workers and machines more productive. Uh, such advances might uh, be entirely new types of machines, such as steam engine, the cell phone, or they might be new techniques for making existing products or providing existing services. In addition, a large body of research suggests that the accumulated skills and expertise embodied in what economists call human capital are the keys to making such advances. Countries with more uh, initial human capital, regions for that matter, with more initial human capital appear to have a greater capacity to develop new technologies to copy or adapt uh, the technologies developed in other countries. Of course, economic growth is not always a smooth process. Anticipated shocks can disrupt activity, necessitating the shift of capital and labor out of a declining sector. Eventually, this shift frees up those resources to be reallocated 
toward expansion in another area. In the short run, however, if the shift is large enough, total acti economic activity might contract for a while, as in a recession, while capital and labor are temporarily idle during the process of ramping up activity in other sectors. An example of such sectoral reallocation uh, is the housing boom and bust of the last two decades. The boom contributed to overinvestment in residential construction, and the retrenchment from that boom, uh, freeing up resources from the residential construction industry, uh, was a significant factor in the Great Recession. The labor market was simply unable to rapidly absorb the large number of workers who lost jobs in the housing sector. The subsequent expansion gradually created opportunities for many of them, but that process was costly and time-consuming. So I've told you what monetary policy, uh, that monetary policy doesn't affect growth in the long term, uh, but poor monetary policy uh, that leads to high and widely varying inflation can impede economic growth in a number of ways. First, high and variable inflation can interfere with the ability of relative prices to provide the right signals to guide the allocation of productive resources to their highest valued uses. If inflation causes all prices to move simultaneously and uniformly, then it wouldn't affect relative prices, and the pattern of demand and supply would not be affected. But experience suggests that inflation affects different prices differently and at different speeds, and thus alters the relative prices of different goods and services and distorts uh, production and consumption decisions. For example, if inflation initially drives up the price of drywall more than other goods and services, it might be misinterpreted as a signal that society needs a lot more drywall, resulting in overproduction of drywall. In this way, high inflation detracts from growth by making the allocation of productive resources much less efficient. And many economists argue, and I tend to agree, that this channel was one way by which deficient monetary policy in the 1970s contributed to poor economic performance. A second way in which poor monetary policy can limit the economy's real performance by encouraging people, encouraging people to wastefully devote resources to trying to avoid holding money. Inflation makes money a bad investment for savings. Since the longer you hold currency, the more value it loses. This makes people willing to go out of their way to keep their money holding low. For instance, by making smaller, more frequent withdrawals from their interest-paying uh, bank accounts. Uh, in addition, there's a, a, an incentive to invest in payment mechanisms that make an end run by using uh, currency in day-to-day -day transactions. Resources devoted to economizing on money holdings are resources that could otherwise have been spent on the production of useful goods and services. Um, and uh, we've seen examples of this effect in, in uh, particularly acutely uh, felt in economies with hyperinflation, with very large inflation rates, uh, where a tremendous amount of activity is devoted to um, skirting the tax, inclusive tax on uh, money holdings. So monetary policy can have a sustained positive effect on economic growth by avoiding the negative consequences of poor monetary policy, the two factors I've just um, outlined. This requires low and stable inflation. Um, but this isn't what most people have in mind when they think of the connection between monetary policy and economic growth. Rather, I think people envision monetary policy boosting growth by stimulating aggregate demand with low interest rates. Here, I think the evidence suggests that the powers of monetary policy are quite limited when monetary policy itself is not the source of instability. Unanticipated changes in the stance of monetary policy. Monetary policy economists call these 
monetary shocks, um, unanticipated uh, changes in monetary policy can boost economic activity for a time, but this effect is temporary. Attempts to systematically and persistently stimulate growth in this way is going to lead to rising inflation, and the central bank will find itself needing to change course by raising interest rates and causing a recession in order to rein in inflation. The experience of the 70s and early 1980s demonstrates the undesirable nature of such monetary policy strategies. There is, by the way, another way in which central bank can, um, a central bank can affect uh, real economic activity. And the central bank can use its balance sheet, and many central bank balance sheets are quite large these days, to alter the allocation of credit in the economy by lending to a particular sector or by the securities of private sector entities, the central bank credit allocation can cause more resources to flow to those segments of the economy than would otherwise be the case. Be clear though, this deprives other sectors of resources, and it may distort economic activity in a way that is unproductive. Importantly though, I would not characterize central bank credit allocation as monetary policy, but rather as a variety of fiscal policy and as a result, I think it's inappropriate for such actions to be taken uh, by a central bank. I think those actions should be taken only by elected branches um, of the government. So far, I've talked about uh, the adverse effects of monetary policy on economic growth. What positive role can monetary policy play? Monetary policy is uniquely capable of affecting the average level of prices over the long term. The mechanism through which monetary policy has its ultimate effect on the price level is through the process of money creation. That is, the process by which central bank actions affect different forms of money, such as bank deposits that people use in transactions for goods and services. Now, I realize it's much more common these days for people to think of and talk about monetary policy as setting an interest rate target. And that's what my central banks around the world do, and that's how people talk about it. That's in part because money demand seems to fluctuate significantly. So central banks have shifted to talking about interest rate setting, but you know prices and quantities both interact in markets, and you can achieve a given price with a certain quantity of supply, um, and you can think of yourself as setting the quantity or setting the price. Um, and uh, the way central banks go about it, it's, it's been found to be more effective to set. Uh, quantity to hit a given price target and have the quantity supply meet variations in demand at, at a given interest rate and to set monetary policy that way. This shift has been important, uh, but it, it shouldn't detract from the notion, from the, the, the principle that it's really the quantity of monetary liabilities, even though they fluctuate with demand at given interest rates, um, that's really at stake. Prior to 2008, the Fed achieved its target for the federal funds rate, for example. The federal funds rate is the price of overnight loans of bank reserves uh, in between banks in the banking system. Um, if we achieved our, our target for that interbank rate uh, by manipulating the supply of bank reserves, uh, which is a sort of a form of money that's on our books, a liability of the central bank. Um, reductions in our interest rate target required that we increase the supply of reserves, make it less scarce to reduce the price. And the resulting money creation um, by the central bank also stimulated money creation by the private banking system, and that in turn drives, is what drives determination of the price level. 
the unique ability of monetary policy to affect the price level or the rate of inflation over time. It's embedded in the statement of longer-run goals uh, that's issued every January since 2012. It's been issued every January by the Federal Open Market Committee, the FOMC. That uh, statement says in part, and I'll quote to the relevant part here, the inflation rate over the longer run is primarily determined by monetary policy, and hence the committee has the ability to specify a longer run goal for inflation. Now, as I noted earlier, if frictions in goods and financial markets impede price adjustment, then monetary policy may temporarily affect real economic activity along with its effect on the price level. In particular, a low interest rate policy will tend to stimulate real activity for a time. These effects can give rise to a short-run empirical correlation between observed behavior of inflation and the observed behavior of real economic activity, things like GDP and employment. Such correlations are often referred to as the Phillips curve after a British economist in the middle of the last century. Real resource utilization or other measures of real activity positively correlated with inflation. So I'm sure you all know, however, being good students, uh, correlation is not causation. Uh, and thus, we should not interpret the Phillips curve as indicating that low interest rate, uh, a low interest rate raises inflation because of the stimulation of real activity, uh, putting upward pressure on real resource costs. Rather, monetary policy acts on inflation and if certain frictions are present on real activity simultaneously as well. Reconciling the behavior of monetary aggregates, measures of the stock of money, uh, with the behavior of inflation has been difficult over the years, but it's become more difficult since the crisis. The dramatic increase in the Fed's monetary liabilities after 2008, uh, from just under $1 trillion to uh, over $4 trillion now, Cause concern that surging inflation was imminent. That hasn't happened, obviously. Inflation not only has failed to rise, but it's been persistently low relative to the FOMC's stated goal of 2%. The last reading of 2% or greater for the 12 month change in the price index for personal consumption and expenditures, this is the methodologically superior uh, inflation index. The last reading of 2% or greater for that index was in April of 2012. Since 2003, the core index, the one version of that index that strips out the ball of food and energy um, sectors, has fluctuated between 1.3 and 1.7%. So people focus on the core because it's less subject to um, readily reversed, sort of <coughs> frequently reversed movements in food and energy prices. It has, has more momentum and thus provides greater signal value for the future course of overall inflation. Some argue that the zero lower bound on interest rates, the fact that it's hard to push interest rates below zero, has been interfering with the Fed's ability to keep inflation from falling. This is based on the idea, widely attributed to a Swedish economy named Newt Vixel, that keeping inflation close to our objective requires that the real short-term interest rate should track the economy's underlying natural real interest rate. The idea of a natural real interest rate, one that uh, reflects something of an equilibrium, is attributed to him. Because the Fed's nominal interest rate target has been constrained by zero, policy might be disinflationary if the natural real rate has fallen significantly. So we can't reach it with the nominal rate uh, constrained at zero. 
So this hypothesis is tricky to assess because the natural real interest rate, this idea of an equilibrium real interest rate um, of pixel, is uh, not directly observed uh, latent variables. Um, and so you have to make some independent, to make an independent measurement of that, you need to um, deploy auxiliary assumptions um, or some theoretical structure. You need some extra assumptions in order to get it out of the data. So there are current estimates of the natural rate of interest in the United States. They're all subject to a fair amount of uncertainty, uh, as you might imagine. Uh, but most are clustered right at or just above zero right now. And so this is for the real interest rate. Uh, it's a real concept, so it's the inflation-adjusted interest rate. Um, this is well above the actual real federal funds rate, which has been below negative one for some time. At this point, Estimates of the natural real rate don't suggest then uh, that the zero lower bound is impeding the Fed's ability to attain its 2% inflation objective. In fact, this perspective would bolster the case for raising the federal funds rate target. Since uh, in Newton Pixel's uh, framework, uh, the industry has to trend back to that uh, equilibrium uh, real rate over time. So even though inflation has been running below the Fed's target, um, if, while inflation's been running below the Fed's target, inflation expectations uh, also seem to have declined recently. One way, way to measure the general level of inflation expectations, rate expectation, rate inflation people expect on average, is to calculate the difference in yields between Treasury inflation-protected securities, these are called TIPS, these are indexed for inflation, so you get compensated for what inflation occurs between now and when you get your return. And traditional treasury notes of the same maturity, which are not indexed for inflation, just promised a certain dollar return. The difference represents an additional yield that investors require as compensation for the effects of inflation on the traditional dollar-denominated returns of, of treasury securities. If you, if you look at this measure, inflation compensation, take the 10-year horizon, inflation compensation measured this way has fallen from about 1.9% in the middle of last year to about 1.2% uh, right now. Uh, so um, this is inflation compensation. Um, inflation compensation also includes an implicit premium for inflation risk, that is the risk that inflation will be significantly different from the expectation, uh, the mean ex uh, expectation uh, that investors hold. So this is um, analogous uh, to the risk premium in any financial asset. Uh, equity premium, for example, the extra compensation to compensate for uh, the likelihood that equity returns are different from the mean uh, that you would expect. Um, and so you can think of this the same, exactly the same way. Several analyses um, of the, uh, the they use models to sort of tease out what that premium is, um, analogous to the way you would take it out of a, an equity, um, an estimate of equity returns, suggest that a lot of the recent decline in total inflation compensation probably represents a decline in this risk premium and not a decline in expected inflation. Um, for example, there's a model uh, that was developed by the Cleveland Fed. This is on their website. They publish these estimates regularly. Um, and it uh, accounts for the risk premium. And it currently estimates that 10-year expected inflation is 1.7%. And remember, uh, the compensation number is 1.2%. So half a percentage point um, attributable to um, uh, risk premium. 
and that that expected inflation number of 1.7 has been fairly stable through most of 2015. Now, you should also remember 10 years includes the next year or two. Right? So, um, a 10 year expected inflation estimate puts weight on um, expected near term inflation um, and uh, more weight than uh, expected inflation years uh, out. Nearly everyone expects inflation to run below the Fed's 2% target in the near term as a result of the declines in oil prices and the rise in the value of the dollar on foreign exchange markets uh, that we've seen. Um, these effects are likely to be transitory. Oil price uh, declines can't go on forever. In fact, they seem to have bottomed out and been in a range of late. Um, moreover, the same thing's true of the dollar. It can't rise forever. Um, in fact, it seems to have topped out of late. Um, so, by com by um, looking at this, you can uh, well, these transitory effects are, are going to play out, um, but, but it, it's still the case that they imply that um, for some time now, inflation is going to be um, less than 2% before it trends back to 2 So you can compare, you can get at this by comparing measures of expected inflation over a five-year horizon and over a longer 10-year horizon. Compare those two, you can tease out an estimate of the inflation rate that investors expect to prevail between five and ten years from now. Um, and if you use the Cleveland Fed's model, for example, uh, you get an estimate of 1.9% for the inflation rate investors implicitly expect. So beginning five years from now and ending ten years from now. Of course, we can also glean information about uh, expected inflation uh, from surveys of businesses and consumers. For example, the New York Fed's uh, survey of consumer expectations, this is one of the methodologically best and most robust uh, surveys uh, of this type. Uh, consumers, it says that some consumers expect inflation to average about 2.5% over the next three years. The University of Michigan's survey of consumers, this is more widely publicized, has a longer track record, uh, shows expected inflation over the next five years averaging 2.4%, very similar figure. Both of these measures of expectations have declined uh, slightly uh, in recent uh, recent days, but um, overall they remain consistent with the Fed's inflation target. Now, inflation expectations play a very important role in determining actual inflation, and as a result, the central bank's ability to control inflation rests in part on its ability to stabilize a longer run inflation expectations. The fact that no single measure of the public's inflation expectations is perfect means that we have to carefully monitor a wide range of indicators, including survey uh, measures and measures from financial markets. So it's conceivable uh, that central bank uh, could anchor expectations and the long-run behavior of inflation uh, simply by stating a goal. Uh, it's more likely that the credibility of such a goal depends on the public's belief that the central bank has and will use all the tools necessary uh, to make inflation uh, return to its goal, uh, should that become necessary. So it's worth looking at the mechanism through which central bank actions affect money creation and ultimately the price level, taking into account how mo the monetary policy toolkit uh, that we use, the mechanism that we use for affecting uh, money creation has changed since the financial crisis. So we're going to do that now. So some economists have argued that since that once inflation rates fall to their effective lower bounds, as I've said, monetary policy may be incapable of raising inflation. I'd argue that this critique neglects a key characteristic of bank reserves. While treasury securities can be held by any financial entity, bank reserves can only be held by banks. 
this, this has some important implications. So the, the banking system can shed other assets to accommodate larger reserve account balances. And they've had to do that uh, since the crisis. As we've engaged in quantitative easing and purchased more assets, uh, when we purchase assets, we create bank reserves to pay for those assets, and that's on the liability side of our balance sheet, grows our balance sheet, grows the reserves in the banking system. Um, but it, they can do that and leave the rest of their balance sheet unchanged as long as that amount is within the amount of liquid assets that they want, that they voluntarily would want to uh, want to hold anyway. That's been the case in this crisis. Um, since the crisis, banks have held a tremendous amount of they're sort of they're called liquidity buffers. Um, these are mostly short-term securities, but uh, 30 or 40 percent of the banking system's uh, liquidity buffer is uh, held in the form of uh, bank reserves uh, in the Federal Reserve accounts. Uh, but there's an upper limit to that um, process of them absorbing bank reserves without changing their lending or depositing activity. At some point, if we raise bank reserves, quality uh, bank reserves high enough, banks would have to raise more capital in order to accommodate uh, the higher reserve account balances. We would just bust through the liquidity buffers they want to hold, and we'd push them to hold even more assets, or else they'd have to sell some uh, other assets. And this would force some broader changes in their portfolios that would inevitably affect uh, economic outcomes, including the price level. Before that occurs, though, there is this broad zone in which the quantity of bank reserves can vary without affecting the price level. So this basic story, uh, that there's a zone in which um, changes in the size of our balance sheet have virtually no effect, and then but there's a zone outside of which it could have very large effects, that to me seems consistent with the difficulty we've had in finding, and other economists have had, in finding evidence of the economic effects of the Fed's large-scale asset purchases. It seems plausible uh, to me, and indeed seems likely to me, uh, that successive rounds of quantitative easing have had little or no tangible effect, apart from the effect they have when we announce them in signaling our concern about economic growth um, and um, future policy settings. So apart from the signaling effect, it's, hard, it's been hard to tease out um, a, a tangible um, economic effect. At the same time, this logic that I've sketched out uh, implies that large enough assets uh, purchases would compel changes in bank balance sheets that would in turn in affect inflation outcomes. So this analysis confirms the intuition that the standard approach of uh, thinking about uh, things in terms of uh, monetary uh, policy remains relevant and that monetary policy still has the capacity to determine inflation and the price level over time. So let me just wrap up um, and note a few things. Since the financial crisis, uh, policymakers and citizens alike have looked to the Fed to foster both financial stability and economic growth. And our nation's central bankers have uh, gone to great lengths in an effort to achieve those objectives. But the role of the Fed is not to prevent every recession uh, or to soothe every instance of financial instability, nor is it within our power to do so. Central banks garner too much praise when times are good and too much blame when times are bad. It is within the power, Fed's power to control the long-run path of the price level. And that remains true even in a world with interest on reserves and very large reserve account balances. Still. The Fed does have an important role to play in fostering economic growth because economies thrive best 
in an environment of basic monetary stability. So in my view, the most important contribution central bankers can make to economic growth is to maintain low and stable inflation. Thank you very much for your kind attention today.
So the notion that we break up the banks, uh, that they're just too big as it is, um, has some in intuition behind it, but the question is, how do you break them up? Uh, do you just think you can't be bigger than 200 billion? Um, back in 1984, when the phrase too big to fail uh, came into common parlance, uh, the institutions involved were, if you scale them up for inflation, about $200 billion. Uh, so a, a famous um, federal regulator went before Congress and admitted that the top 11 institutions or so were too big to fail, and they'd be about $200 billion. So is that big enough? Is that small enough? You know, it's not clear. I mean, do, we, do we go back to a world of just $50 billion banks? Um, I don't think we want to do that. I think that the benefits of um, large-scale uh, depositing, large-scale lending, I think, have, have proven out over time. If you look at Canada, for example, um, they, in the, 18th, in the 19th century, did not have the constraints on branching that the U.S. did. So in Canada, they had, you know, they're about a tenth of our size. In um, 100 years ago, they had a dozen or so banks. 100 years ago, we had 30,000 banks in the U.S. Um, and an incredibly fragmented system where banks basically had one branch in many states and they couldn't have multiple offices. We, over the last 40 years, have swept away those restrictions. I think that brings benefits that we want to think about. So how do you find out? Um, how do you find out uh, what to do about banks? How to break them up? Well, the resolution planning feature of um, Dodd-Frank, provisions of Dodd-Frank, I think are key. This is the one that called living wills that mandates that each institution of these, this is a large, um, systemically important institutions, file a plan with the FDIC and the Fed that explains details how they would be resolved in bankruptcy without government support. So how can we fail you? If you get run into distress, how can we bankrupt you, take you through bankruptcy and resolve you, and restructure your, your debts and the like? without causing a catastrophe, without requiring government support. And this is a great test. And if we have to break them up to make them satisfy that test, that tells you how you have to break them up. Those plans, um, but if we don't have to break them up, that'll tell you we don't have to break them up. So those plans detail things like where all their information systems are, uh, the ways in which different legal entities are related to each other, uh, so which legal entities depend on services from which other legal entities? And um, so, so could you, for example, take the UK broker-dealer and sell it uh, in bankruptcy and, and go on with just the US operations, things like that? So severability between different uh, parts of the organization. What liquidity provisions do they have? So to operate themselves in bankruptcy while these decisions are being made, do they have enough liquidity to do their day-to-day -day operations? Um, so just the way a private company uh, would have some way of getting through bankruptcy. Let's make them write down how it would work. Show us the scenario. Now the, the Fed and the FDIC are on the hook for actually explain, for actually deciding whether these are satisfactory or not, whether they're credible or not. If they're not credible, the FDIC and the Fed have the power to require changes. And if the bank, uh, if the institution doesn't submit a plan that remedies those deficiencies, um, the FDIC and the Fed have the power to order um, them to sell off businesses, restructure themselves, restructure their operations. Uh, so we have the power now to, in essence, break up the banks. Uh, but we have it in a, a structure that provides some discipline 
and some rationale for how and why you would go about doing it. So I'm sympathetic to the notion, but I, you know, I, I want to know the details, and I think we have a we have a, a path towards finding out whether we really need that or not. And I think we need to let that play out. It's all a lot of hard work. We made a lot of progress, but um, um, I'm hopeful that that will. Good question. Very important question for our time. Yes, sir. Thank you for the enlightening presentation. You pointed to the importance of technological innovation in the relationship between monetary policy and activity, and part of that innovation affects uh, uh, the financial sector. So financial innovation affects uh, uh, the creation of money itself, the uh, uh, electronic currency uh, coming to be used primarily, and so on and so forth. How do you see the emergence of these alternative forms of money affecting the, the relationship uh, between monetary policy and activity? And uh, the second point is uh, related to the second part of the presentation where you stress the fact that monetary policy can affect the price level. At the same time, we've been away from target. So maybe there is an implication there that we need more of the quantitative easing type of intervention to get the price level back on target. But yeah. Uh, so two um, two questions. So first um, about private currencies, um, I, the provision of monetary assets in the United States, by the central bank, but then by um, the banking system, is heavily regulated. Whenever you have you know an industry that, that's regulated, you have an incentive to innovate uh, to create um, bypass. To bypass regulations and create something. So um, there's that that can be good. That can be not so good. Right? It can be wasteful to just try and make an end run around regulations. Um, so in about private currency, there's this question: Are these uh, genuinely beneficial innovations on their own right, or to some extent are they um, uh, motivated by um, bypassing existing regulations? In, in which case. It may or may not be, you know, socially constructive. Um, and then, um, you know, uh, setting aside those things, there's a question: Are they going to succeed in the marketplace? I think, um, for most American consumers, uh, I think right now it looks like it's your know, market penetration is, going to, is pretty low, and it's likely to be fairly low um, until um, uh, providers uh, can can uh, create a monetary unit that has a more stable value. Time. And I think the instability, the, the volatility, the value of private currencies so far has inhibited their wider spread adoption. Aspects of the technology, blockchain ledgers, for example, though, uh, look promising, uh, and it looks like um, parts of the mechanism could be used in a lot of other settings for clearing and selling. I know some private sector entities are pursuing those innovations. And that's, that's, that's kind of exciting. Um, the Federal Reserve itself is uh, involved in um, an effort to try and uh, accelerate uh, and um, promote and support um, innovation um, through a, 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 an effort aimed at uh, improving uh, the payment system uh, to try and uh, 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 encourage efforts to design systems that are faster and, and ubiquitous. Um, our clearing settlement system takes a while, takes a couple days before you know, you know whether your debit card transaction is uh, cleared or not. Um, and uh, something something that's faster, but you know, is, is ubiquitous, like our current system, might be useful. And, and uh, my colleague Esther George, the president of Kansas City Fed, is leading that effort, um, and uh, that looks very promising. It looks like it's going to stimulate a lot of conversations that might 
otherwise have taken some time to play out. Um, so I'm hope, very hopeful that a lot of industry players have been brought together to, to, uh, uh, to work on that. Um, so the second question is whether um, the, uh, the uh, low level of inflation implies the need for greater quantitative easing. At this point, I don't see that. Um, I, I think that's a remote possibility. I think um, signs are inflation is quite likely to trend back to 2% once oil bottoms out and the dollar times out. And it looks like that's happening now. We've got a great, um, a very positive CPI report um, for January. And I'm hopeful about the PCE price index report on to diverge methodologically on some uh, level. But um, still, the, the strength of the CPI report I took is encouraging. We've got some very low headline numbers in, um, in, in, in the recent past. And so the 12-month number is going to take some time before the 12-month number clears those out and we get a good read. So I'm going to be watching the monthly numbers as, as they come in, particularly the core number, because that's going to be, provide a strong signal of whether there's a broad-based dis, disinflation going on or we're back to 2%, but it looks as if we're on track to return to 2%. And the, the relative stability of inflation expectations um, gives me some encouragement in that regard as well. Yes. I want to thank you for taking my question. That was actually a great point you just brought up on inflation. Um, I had a question on one of your earlier points where you said it's not the, the job of the Fed to assuage uh, market concerns around Baal. And it would seem to, to market participants that in the last 18 months that the opposite has generally been true. Thinking about like the taper tantrum more or less paid off if, uh, if, uh, if you threw the tantrum. August fall led to a delay of a September rate increase. This fall is, is, is in all likelihood uh, leading to a deferral of a raise in, in March and expectations have been lower, et cetera. And so I'm just curious if, if someone, I'm relatively young, but I've still seen far worse than the volatility we see now um, and the, uh, the economic data, 200,000 jobs, uh, some recent inflation seems to suggest that we don't need uh, an emergency rate uh, yet. It does seem like whenever the volatility does creep up, that the Fed changes um, its communications and, and, and assuages the fears of the market. So I'm just kind of curious, you know, how the conversations evolve uh, within the Fed and what your view is on that. Thank you. Uh, thanks. Good question. Um, certainly, financial markets have been um, more volatile this year than uh, in the recent past, and it's certainly true that in the past there have been instances in which financial market volatility has risen. And um, it seemed to have affected the course of monetary policy. For example, 1998, when the Asian crisis and uh, Russia and IMF, um, there was a, a spike in volatility, Fed cut rates three times, and then um, in hindsight, that looks as if we went too far. It took too long for that. In 99, inflation rose, and we had to raise rates, and uh, that contributed to the recession that followed. Um, so I think uh, this has been a delicate question for the Fed. Um, financial markets are, are forward-looking, and so you have to take seriously uh, the possibility that um, what you're seeing in financial markets it reflects uh, an aggregation of private assessments of future economic performance that's relevant to policy setting. Um, and um, you know, if we respond, that would be sort of the basis for responding. If it deflects our path, it would be the basis for deflecting our path. But at the same time, um, there are, uh, it's often the case uh, that uh, financial market developments like we've seen in the last 
a few weeks, um, have a little import uh, ultimately for the fundamentals of economic growth and inflation, uh, and thus don't deserve, um, and, and, and thus don't have strong implications for policy. Um, I think it's too soon to say in this instance, uh, you know, which case it is. Um, so we'll be watching carefully. Um, so far, I haven't seen strong evidence in the economic data uh, to, um, uh, to shift my outlook, um, both for economic growth and, and rates for this year. Um, but we'll naturally be watching very carefully as time lapses. Um, so back in December, um, you know the committee, uh, the committee's projections for uh, the funds rate at the end of the year was uh, built in a number of rate increases for this year. I still think prospects for rate increases this year uh, is uh, a logical, um, a logical one. Uh, I think economic growth is going to continue, probably around two percent real GDP. I think more important numbers employment growth. Um, you know, we saw a slightly weaker number in January, but we've been running 200,000 and we need less than 100,000 to keep our population growth, the growth of working age population. So I think a continued strength in the labor market, um, perhaps slowing because the labor market's tightening, um, but uh, that most likely really strengthen our weakness. Good morning. Um, thank you for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. I have a question about community size banks, small banks. Um, you addressed the theme with large, too big to fail fund banks. Uh, but I think there's a lot of volatility going on in the community bank market, and I'd like to hear your perspective on what the Fed can do about these situations, um, if they should intervene, um, or just your opinion on the community bank market. Question. Community bank market. Um, so this, I mean, this is. Uh, uh, this is a fascinating subject. Um, the size, if you think about the size distribution of U.S. banks, I pointed out you know, earlier that we had like 30,000 banks in 1920 or so. Um, and uh, that was driven in a large part by the um, constraints on branching. Um, but Americans have gotten to like community banks. Community banks now that we don't have constraints on branching and consolidation. Community banks have, have maintained a, a constructive economic niche. Um, and I think if, if, if you look at the fundamentals, the, the economist that I find most persuasive points to the difference in the way a large bank has to manage its lending decisions versus the way a small bank is capable of managing its lending decisions. So lending is an information intensive business. Uh, you're, you're looking at a lot of data. I mean, there's, there's data on the spreadsheets, but you're also making a, coming to a qualitative assessment, you know, a judgment. Uh, that can depend on subjective factors. And uh, larger institutions have a much harder time at, at um, uh, managing uh, across a large uh, fleet, you know, a large uh, team of lending officers, um, lending decisions that depend on subjective factors. Um, and in, you know, in addition, there's sort of a scale factor. So that what you tend to see is larger banks not as competitive in smaller loan markets. Um, and that leaves um, the field for um, institutions where the lending officer is one or two levels away from the credit review committee. And um, you can, it can make decisions that take into account more subjective factors. So there's an obvious economic efficiency benefit there, and I think that's the basis for their comparative advantage. Um, what's happened over the last 40 years while this consolidation boom has been going 
this consolidation uh, rate that's been going on in banking uh, with the re reduction in restrictions on branching has been um, technological innovations that have made uh, consumer lending a you know, scale business uh, driven by sort of automated credit valuation, uh, which wasn't true in the 70s. Um, and, um, uh, and, and, and that's taken market share out of community banks in, in some credit lines and left them focused on small business commercial lending uh, opportunities basically um, on the asset side. Um, on the deposit side, you know, the, uh, the play field is pretty level. Um, a lot of people were predicting community banks with, with the demise of community banks 20 years ago, but I, I don't think they appreciated the extent to which you could rent economies of scale. By um, uh, using third-party um, technology uh, vendors to provide a kind of back office support at scale um, to community banks that, that larger banks um, enjoy. Uh, difference, the difference now, though, there is innovation, and that the larger banks are going to innovate more rapidly and invest more because of scale innovation. Sometimes community banks have a harder time keeping up on the innovation front in on the retail um, deposit side. Um, it's a tough market. Um, I've been surprised that there wasn't more consolidation after the recession. Um, it, it's not obvious where the optimal size distribution is, but um, before going into the recession, there was a downward trend in the number of smaller institutions relative to small, so the size distribution moving up, um, and that's, that's been continuing. But I think it was stymied by um, the um, recession because a lot of banks who would be natural acquirers weren't in good enough condition themselves for regulators to feel comfortable that would require another institution. As that cures itself, um, I think we're seeing, that's why we're seeing more mergers and acquisitions now in that space. I expect that to con continue um, and through uh, the well-run uh, community institutions to, to thrive and continue to find a constructive place in uh, the, the landscape of community banking. Kind of a longer answer, but it's a complicated Hi, uh, earlier in your speech you mentioned that uh, a QE is primarily acting as a signaling device throughout the economy. I just wonder if, because of the take that QE has been going on now for several years, if instead of it being a signaling device, that it's actually training uh, the real economic actors that uh, we can't move the economy forward without it. And as such, it's acting um, for economic actors to be more conservative with their decisions. And, and maybe, I don't know if it's a good case in point or not, but the backdrop for consumption has never, hasn't been this good in a long, long time. Unemployment's down, real incomes are rising. We've had a massive tax cut with lower energy prices, and yet consumption's been accelerating in the face of that. So I just wonder if, if the long-run impact of QE-type policies is, is Maybe almost like that, some form of liquidity trap. That's an interesting question. Um, so let me comment on two things. First, um, so I was there when QE, these QEs were debated and implemented. I voted against them, but the, um, except for the first one uh, in early '09, there I thought it was, uh, you know, as an emergency effort um, worth doing. Um, but since then, I've opposed buying agency mortgage-backed securities because it's credit allocation and uh, really inappropriate for the Fed. Um, I also um, was skeptical about QE2 and QE3. So um, 
I, I don't think they were intended solely as signals. I don't think they were intended as signals at all. They all, they all did signal concerns because um, when we adopted them and announced them, it, uh, it revealed that our concern about economic growth had risen above the thresholds um, that warranted us doing uh, doing this. I think they were based on a um, you know a theory that they might be effective. Uh, you know, for those for the professors in the ground, students habitat theory that there's um, that uh, you know that there's some impediments to arbitraging, sort of buying a bunch of two years for five you know five times and, and holding a ten year. Um, and the forward curve, that there's some impediments to that arbitrage, but at the same time, theory has to hold that there is, isn't such an arbitrage between a 10-year treasury and a 10-year corporate. And that literature, is, it had totally died out when the crisis <coughs> That literature had sort of abandoned the notion that you know, habitat theory was you know, that terribly persuasive an account of how financial market markets work. Um, and so on the off chance that it was true, like it's sort of having died out in the literature, I think. Um, committee members were willing to give it a try in case it was effective. I think the evidence is it's, is equally as consistent with it not having been effective. About consumption, um, so the fourth quarter consumption number, consumption growth was low, but there were some special factors. There. First of all, um, the warm weather, November, December, meant less consumption of utility services, heating uh, and the like. Um, and um, the warmer weather, retailers report the warmer weather um, caused people to delay buying uh, cold weather clothes, uh, which are closed. Um, so we're seeing some rebound, got a good retail sales number for January. We've seen little slow patches in consumer spending, but a lot of forecasters are looking for 3% consumer spending growth in the, fourth, in the first quarter. Um, and, and if you look at the fundamentals, real disposable income growing around 3%. Um, year over year, um, employment growth still seems strong. Wage, nominal wage growth has picked up. I mean, we've been waiting for this for a couple of years now as the labor market tightens, but it seems pretty clear now that there's an upward trend in the rate at which wages are, are increasing. If you combine that with, as you said, the tax cut from lower oil prices, real wage gains have been very strong. That's what's translating into real disposable income growth. So I see the fundamentals for consumer spending is still remaining strong and, and view the dip in, in consumer spending growth in the fourth quarter is transitory. Good question. Come to the end. Thank you very much. Let's give a big hand.